Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Oswin Murray for a conversation about the life and writings of the Greek historian Herodotus. Dr. Murray is Emeritus Fellow of Balliol College at the University of Oxford in the UK. He's a British classical scholar and historian. He's the author of several books, including authoring the book, The Symposion, Drinking Greek Style, which was published by Oxford University Press, and editing the book, A Commentary on Herodotus, books one to four, which was also published by Oxford University Press. Welcome to the call, Osman. Thank you. It's nice to, to hear you. Nice to hear and connect with you as well. Who was Herodotus? Well, Herodotus was the is the oldest surviving uh, historian uh, of uh, the Greek world. He lived in the fifth century BC, uh, and he wrote a history of the conflict between. Uh, Greece and Persia, uh, which had effectively finished uh, when he was a young man. Uh, he, he's, he's particularly interesting because he's the, the source of uh, all uh, historical writing in the Western tradition. Okay. Do we know, um, and I know he's been uh, labeled as the father of history, so I presume that's why? That's indeed. Yes, that's why, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, do, do scholars know where and when he was born? I know you said 5th century. Um, is it, do they know the specific date and where he was born? Well, we, have a, uh, we know, in fact, extremely little about Herodotus, uh, despite the fact uh, that his narrative, the, the, the text of his narrative, uh, continually uses the first person. He's always talking about what I saw, what I heard, uh, where I went. Uh, it's as if uh, he's, in fact, the first uh, person, the first person to uh, present himself as the author of a book. Hmm. Uh, but we know very little about him. Uh, part of the problem is that uh, he announces who he is uh, at the, uh, in the first sentences of his work. He says, Herodotus of Halicarnassus. This is the inquiry, the result of the inquiries of Herodotus of Halicarnassus. Halicarnassus is a, uh, a city in uh, uh, Asia Minor on the coast of Turkey. But the problem uh, is that uh, um, although that is what the text that we normally use nowadays says, mm. the earliest quotation uh, from Herodotus is by Aristotle, the philosopher, who quotes the first sentence completely differently. It says, uh, uh, Herodotus of Theorii uh, in South Italy wrote this text. So uh, there are, uh, people uh, are still arguing as to whether Herodotus meant to say uh, 
that he came from Halicarnassus, or whether he meant to say he came from uh, Thurii, which is in the extreme south of Italy. Uh, probably, I, I think the answer is that he was born in Halicarnassus, uh, and he finished his life in uh, the new foundation by the Athenians of the city of Thurii in South Italy. And in between, he traveled. So that to ask, as it were, where Herodotus is from is uh, rather a meaningless question. Uh, what we do know is he must have spent a lot of time in Athens. Uh, he was a friend of the poet Sophocles. Um, he was clearly uh, completely up to date on all the latest ideas in fifth century Athens. But those, that framework is about all we know about him, despite the fact he presents himself all the time uh, as the author of the text. Hmm. Was it common, probably not a lot of people, you said he was the first known um, historian, uh, but was it common in that uh, era for writers not to write as much about themselves? Yes, I think it was. I think uh, they wanted to be uh, uh, recognized as the author of the work. Uh, but basically, this was, in effect, a title page. Uh, hmm. This is, uh, you know, uh, this is my book. This is where I come in. I wrote this book. Uh, but it, uh, the, the, uh, I don't think anyone really thought it, it mattered uh, what had happened in your own life. Uh, what mattered was what you wrote. Uh, and indeed, uh, there's an additional problem in, uh, in the case of Herodotus, uh, because we do, we do know uh, that the original um, presentation of the material that appears in our text was not written at all. It was spoken in lectures uh, because his uh, successor, Thucydides, uh, attacks him by saying uh, that his own work, Thucydides' work, which was indeed written and never uh, performed as lectures, he said, uh, my work, Thucydides' work, is not a display piece for instant listening, but a possession for all time. So Herodotus clearly was conceived of by Thucydides as, uh, in the previous generation, as uh, a guy who created display pieces for instant listening. Okay. And so he, uh, he stands, in, in that sense, right at the boundary between uh, the oral text, the oral communication, and the written text. How do scholars then reconcile his writing? Is there consensus or what would be the um, overall f uh, feeling from a historicity or veracity perspective when reading Herodotus' Herodotus's work? I think um, Herodotus was trying to record the past, um, but he was not 
doing it in the way that uh, a modern historian might by trying to find out the truth about the past. What he wanted to record was the stories of the past, what people thought had happened, the memories, not the facts necessarily. Mm. He hoped that the memories would include the facts, uh, but there's quite a lot in Herodotus which is uh, uh, much more interesting than pure factual information. It's, mm. it's constructed by a man who is a master of uh, storytelling mm. and who is listening to people telling stories to him. Uh, so that when he describes what he's doing, and he does that uh, pretty uh, coherently, everything he's doing is a story. It's a logos. Uh, the entire work is a logos. It's the longest work that had ever been written uh, and remained the longest work for a very long time until Christianity came along. Uh, it's just uh, one huge logos, one huge story, uh, which is beautifully orchestrated. Mm. Um, each section of it is another Logos, another interior story. And inside that, there are all sorts of other stories. So that everything is organized uh, in narratives which, uh, unlike uh, uh, boring chronological history, uh, is just a succession of facts. This is not just a succession of facts. It's a, it's, a, it's a sequence of interlocking stories. And each of these stories has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that, of course, may get in the way of telling you what, what, what really happened, uh, but it's much more interesting. And indeed, if one thinks of the modern practice of history, most of us nowadays uh, believe that uh, uh, we're not fixing for all time facts. There are some facts, we try and fix them, but basically it's our interpretation. Uh, it's our uh, structuring of the past that matters. And that's what Herodotus has done. He's taken the, all the structures that existed in his society and knitted them together into this one vast structure. And as a footnote item, what's the cognate, the English cognate for Logos? I think the best cognate would be story. Okay. Just very neutral narrative. After all, Logos uh, has had a, a long history in uh, uh, Western civilization. It's what uh, uh, um, St. John, John says at the beginning of the new, uh, his, his gospel. In the beginning was the Logos. We don't know whether that he meant by that the same sort of thing that Herodotus would have meant, probably not. Uh, but the Logos is, is somehow the structure, the structure of the universe, the way things are, the way we see things. So can you describe at a higher level his corpus and what i mean by that question is when like his body of work what 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 exists 
like like how many pages would exist how many like if they were put into different types of books on different topics how many books would exist can you describe the actual corpus yes i, I mean the uh, the text we have now uh, which must be i suppose the text that he created uh, towards the end of his uh, mm-hmm. uh, career um, has come down to us in nine what's called nine books okay and uh, each book was given a name many centuries later uh, and therefore a character characterized uh, but we don't originally uh, the this text must have been written on papyrus rolls and we can know roughly speaking the length uh, of a papyrus roll uh, a papyrus roll papyrus is It's a a Egyptian plant which is smashed flat and glued together Mm -hmm. to make a writing surface. Mm -hmm. And it it exists for about uh, uh, about, uh, as many as... uh, uh, 20, 30 feet in the original mm. uh, and you can write as much as you can on that and then you have to stop and you have another roll mm-hmm. mm. uh, so probably in the case of Herodotus uh, from what we know about other papyrus uh, documents um, each book would have been uh, one roll uh, would be two rolls uh, yeah. So that the totality of Herodotus, if you had owned an original first edition of Herodotus, the totality would probably have been something like 18 rolls of uh, uh, papyrus, uh, roughly the dimension of a, a toilet paper, actually. <laughs> so this isn't a historical question, but I want to ask it. Where, where are those writings now, the 18 papyrus rolls? Oh, they're not. We don't. We we have some fragments of them which have been okay. found in ancient Egypt, in tombs, uh, or, or as uh, very often as uh, uh, stuffing for uh, Egyptian mummies, because as waste paper mm-hmm. to use to stuff Egyptian mummies to once the intestines have been removed. Uh, so we have small fragments, uh, thirty or forty of them, uh, but the the text we have was actually copied uh, at some point mm-hmm. in uh, the late middle the, the, the early middle ages late antiquity uh, into uh, mm. books like the modern book um, uh, written on vellum on uh, uh, parchment on uh, uh, animal skins basically created. Mm-hmm purpose of writing and we've got uh, and was then copied onto uh, uh, paper uh, in in the renaissance and so we have uh, we've got about 2,000 years of uh, a text which is slowly being transformed into what we have today and what people do today is they study this text and they try and reconstruct uh, what Herodotus uh, had originally said, 
sometimes sensibly, sometimes manically, sometimes completely stupidly. Mm. Uh, the, one of the latest reconstructions uh, attempted to reproduce the uh, original dialect of, Her of Herodotus. Now, Herodotus' dialect has been uh, was not used in the Greek world uh, for very long after his uh, lifetime. So everything is what we the Greek that we have is mostly a version of Attic Greek, of the Greek that was prevalent in Athens. And uh, we know that Herodotus did not write Attic Greek, he wrote Ionic Greek. Uh, and the text that we have is a mixture of Attic and Ionic. So who changed what when? Uh, and, uh, and people go, uh, in the end, slightly crazy trying to work this out. Uh, one person thought he knew uh, what Ionic Greek was, and he wrote, rewrote the whole of Herodotus in Ionic Greek. But nobody has accepted his text. It's not read by anyone now. Ah, oh, wow. Most people settle for what has come down to us uh, through uh, the papyrus, vellum, uh, printed book, and try and uh, uh, change it slightly to make uh, make it uh, to iron out the problems. Because all these books were, of course, written by hand, and uh, uh, as uh, most of us know, if you try and write something by hand before the age of uh, uh, computers, uh, you interpolate a very large number of mistakes uh, and if, you, if you're using the spell check uh, the, the spell checker interpolates a very large number of mistakes into anything you write uh, so we have to try and correct those mistakes uh, more or less successfully so there's a considerable mm. uncertainty about uh, the actual uh, words themselves but the, uh, the, the, the stories the general drift that clearly uh, remains. It was a very, pr a very pragmatic answer. Thanks for expanding on that. Um, can you speak more about what he wrote about? Yes, he, uh, he, it's the, 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 the theme is, uh, why the Greeks and the Asiatics came to quarrel with each other, and he, and the wars that they fought, and the final uh, achievement of the Greeks, which was to turn back uh, the Persian imperial advance, to destroy the Persian army, uh, and to remain a free people. So he's. He's trying to structure the whole of his narrative around uh, something that I'm sure that he got from Homer, from the, uh, the Iliad, around a great war. The causes of, for this war, the events in the war, the heroic deeds, and all the great achievements of, of humankind uh, in this entire period that he talks about. Uh, and he's, he begins somewhat flippantly by uh, uh, saying, well, what, what was the cause of the war between the, the Greeks and the Persians, uh, the Greeks and the East? Uh, it, 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 was, uh, it was all to do with women. 
they kept stealing each other's women. Who stole the first woman? Who stole the second woman? Who stole the third? Uh, and so on. Uh, and he tells this story as if it, it, it's an it could be an explanation. Uh, of course, uh, Helen of Troy is included in the, in the narrative, but she's not the first one. Uh, and then he suddenly says, well, that, that says maybe, I'm going to start from the first thing I know about the conflict between the Greeks and the East. And that is the conflict between the Greeks of Asia Minor and uh, on the coast of Asia Minor and the Lydian Empire in the center of Asia Minor. And the Lydians uh, conquered the Greeks and subjected the Greeks to, uh, to, 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 to their control. Um, but that story begins again with a woman because the first king of Lydia uh, that he's going to talk about is King Gyges. And Gyges became king of Lydia uh, because the previous king had been obsessed with the beauty of his wife. Uh, this is a famous story that's told. It's uh, mm. been told many times. Uh, and he persuaded Gyges uh, to hide behind the door of his bedroom so he could see how beautiful his wife was. And uh, Gyges did this, uh, and then slipped out, uh, hopefully unnoticed, but in fact, uh, the woman had noticed. So she called him in the next morning and she said, right, you have a choice. Either you die on the spot, or you murder my husband and marry me. So he chose to murder the king mm. and become king himself. Mm. And the story goes on in this. Uh, I mean, it's, it's okay. This is a this is a myth. This is a this is okay. a. It's it's not even a Greek story. It's an Oriental story. It's a story about the harem. Um, so he must he has picked up a real story, mm. but of course it's not true. Or, in what sense is it true? We don't know. And then he goes on from there. The Lydians conquered the uh, uh, the Ionians, and then uh, the, the subsequent king of uh, Lydia, King Croesus, uh, decided he was going to expand his empire even further. And he would uh, he thought he might uh, try and conquer the whole of Mesopotamia, and so he picked a, picked a quarrel with the Mesopotamians, with the Persians, who happened to be the Persians, and uh, he uh, attacked them. Uh, and unfortunately, the Persians won. So the Persians arrived on the coast of Asia Minor as the dominant imperial power. And from there, he goes on to show how the Persians got involved with the mainland Greeks in, in what is now uh, the modern state of Greece, mm -hmm. um, and uh, particularly with Athens and with Sparta, who had annoyed the Persian king. Uh, and uh, so the Persian king decided to punish them. Uh, but in the course, uh, the story does not center on, on the Greeks, because in the course of telling the story, he has to tell about the other conquests of the Persians. So he talks 
in the second book about uh, begins to talk about the conquest of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And that leads him to talk about the whole history of Egypt from the beginning of time. And the customs of the Egyptians, which are so different from everyone else's customs. Um, in all sorts of very peculiar ways. Uh, but in case, mm-hmm. in the end, the Persians conquer them. Uh, and then the Persians decide they want to conquer the people of South Russia, the Scythians, the nomads of South Russia. And there they fail. Uh, but in the course of that, uh, the story goes on. Uh, they decided they would like to conquer uh, northern Greece, uh, Macedonia, and uh, and southern Greece as well. And one of the reasons for that is that uh, the cities of the coast have rebelled against uh, the Persians the famous, in something called the Ionian Revolt. Uh, mm-hmm. And it had taken the, the Persians a great deal of time to uh, suppress them. Uh, and they've been helped by the Athenians. So the king Darius decides uh, to punish the Athenians. And he sends a big expedition to uh, mainland Greece by sea, and they land at the at Marathon, and that is the famous ac- account of the Battle of Marathon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the king is rebuffed. So the next king decides, well, he's going to go by land, not by sea. And he marches south uh, through North Greece down to the Peloponnese. And the whole story unfolds with a series of uh, battles at uh, uh, Thermopylae, uh, at Artemisium, at Salamis, in which Greeks are defeated by land, uh, but victorious by sea. And eventually King Xerxes has to return. Uh, leaving his uh, second-in-command behind, uh, who is then defeated at the Battle of Plataea. And that whole story has spun out from the starting point right through a whole succession of accounts of different cities, uh, different civilizations, uh, until finally you arrive at the end uh, the, 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 the defeat of the, the defeat of the Persians uh, and the beginnings actually of uh, uh, what will ultimately become the conquests of Alexander the Great a century later. Hmm. So the whole structure, if you like, of uh, classical Greek history is encapsulated in Herodotus. Yeah. Pretty important um, uh, documentation. Um, And I want to go back to a point then to try to wrap up a previous um, commentary you had on the the, the myths and stories, but he's also a historian. Is it reasonable to say that he was using uh, stories as a literary device and he was writing... writing, uh, about myths, whether uh, it might be an interesting, it might it might be interesting to hear what your thoughts on this. If he he made up any of the myths, if there's any, if you have an opinion about that. But he's writing about myths, but he's also writing about history. So there's this kind of weaving in and out in his stories between st- actual fictional stories and 
uh, nonfiction history. Yes, that is uh, uh, that is the sort of uh, problem that uh, uh, we modern ancient historians have to spend our lives trying to sort out. Uh, I mean, there certainly are occasions when uh, totally factual evidence is presented to us. Uh, there's an account of the structure of the Persian army, for instance, uh, and the navy. Uh, there's no, there are various things that look as if they come, even not directly, but ultimately from documents. Uh, there's an account of uh, uh, the uh, accession of King Darius uh, into, to, to, the, to power in Persia, uh, which involves a conspiracy uh, and the uh, murder of the previous king. Now that story, uh, which is is told as a uh, as a uh, as a logos, in fact also appears on an inscription in the middle of Iran, the so-called uh, Bisutun or Behistun inscription, which was put up by King Darius on a cliff top uh, high up uh, above the pass to proclaim uh, to uh, his god, Ahura Mazda, how he won power. And he gives you almost, well, not exactly the same story, but essentially the same information that appears in Herodotus. So there are, there's a factual element. But of course, Darius is much more interested. He's, he's, you know, in order to put this inscription up, he put it up in three languages in a place where no one could read it. And one of those languages was invented for the purpose was invented to tell the story in old Persian, which had never before been written down. Mm -hmm. So he's communicating with God, not with people. Mm. And Persians always tell the truth, as uh, even Herodotus says. Mm. So <laughs> there we have an almost exact transcript, if you like, or, or, or the source of Herodotus' story. Herodotus must have got it from a Persian. High, uh, high official in Persia uh, who, who told him the story as it must have appeared probably in the royal archives or whatever uh, though if the, if the uh, official was very high up he would have been Persian and he would then have been illiterate because nobody, no Persian uh, was literate they, they used the scribes of the previous civilizations uh, when they wanted something written down Mm -hmm. So there is that sense in that he's trying all the time to get at what we would call the truth, but he does it not in the distinction between, as you say, um, uh, as he was just saying, myth and uh, reality, but he's trying to get at what happened through the memories, most of which are oral memories. It's one or two of them, perhaps, mm -hmm. written texts. Though, if they have been real written texts, uh, 
if you'd been shown a document, it would have been in a language he didn't understand. So somebody would have had to, to, to have read it out to him, translated it. So it's... Uh, uh, I think the essential thing is to hold on to the idea of uh, history being memory, not what actually happened. It's what people remember of the past. It's as if you or I uh, were, uh, maybe not you, you're probably too young, mm -hmm. but if, if I had discussed with my, with my grandfather the story of the First World War, what would he have told me? Would he have told me that the Russians marched through North England with snow on their boots? Uh, which everyone believed at the time. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, would you have told me the truth of what it was like to be in the trenches? What would he have told me? We painstakingly mm. reconstructed from the memories that have survived, and also, of course, we're helped by the fact we have a lot of written documents, but actually it's the memories uh, uh, the, the, the more important. There's a very famous book by Paul Vassell called uh, Fassel, sorry, called uh, The Great War on Modern Memory. And that's what Herodotus is doing. It's about the same distance. It's, it, he's talking about the world of his grandfather. I was um, in Athens, no less, um, once, and uh, having a conversation with a Greek man and uh, an artist. And he had a lot of knowledge on history, Greek history and philosophy. And uh, I, I said to him, so we're bantering. And, uh, and I said to him, Odysseus, do you think Odysseus actually existed? And he, his response was, Andrew, it's not about whether he existed or not. It's about the story. <laughs> That's absolutely right. That's right. Um, do we do do scholars know how he was in a position to write about so many important events that span over such a large territory? Well, he talks about in that first sentence. He talks about. Uh, this is the result of my inquiries. And what uh, I think most of us suppose is that these inquiries involve a lifetime of asking people. And so the question then becomes, what sort of people did he ask? Uh, everywhere he went, he would apparently uh, find out about the history of that particular city, that particular area. Uh, and uh, sometimes he had a, there were texts that he could use. Uh, there was a, a, a poem uh, about the Arimaspians on the Black Sea, which he seems to have used in his account of Scythia, in his account of South Russia. But normally, they, these are individuals, what he calls, uh, how to translate this into... English, what he calls uh, 
learned, but not learned in the sense of learning, but no, uh, authoritative men. So he would, uh, he would try and find, it seems, he would try and find out who were the, uh, uh, the people who knew best the traditions of that city. And mm. he would go and ask them. Sometimes they were priests, the priests of Delphi, for instance. Uh, sometimes they were leading families in, in, in Corinth and in Athens. Uh, sometimes he got somewhat misled because they were uh, in Egypt, for instance, uh, he asked the priests. Now, the trouble was that no self-respecting Egyptian priest uh, would have spoken Greek. So what he's asking is a class of rather junior clerks in the, uh, mm. uh, in, in the religious office uh, who actually were the translators were Greek translators for the Greeks. Mm -hmm. So he's asking completely uh, nondescript and incompetent people. And the information that he gets is very much information which is seen from the bottom upwards, rather than the information of the, of the high priest of Egypt. Uh, and sometimes he doesn't seem to have had much uh, contact. For instance, he doesn't know very much at all about um, the religion of the Persians because he always talks about the religion of each country uh, but the religion of the Persians seems, it, it's very obscure it's as if it's filtered through, through a perspective that has blurred everything uh, he knows one or two facts uh, but he doesn't really understand what the system is that uh, uh, Persian religion imposed he doesn't know about uh, really about Ahura Mazda, uh, uh, the god of light, the, uh, and so on. He doesn't know about Parsi. Uh, the, we know more about the Parsis, about Zoroastrianism, than uh, he ever did. Uh, so we can sometimes mm. supplement him. Uh, and very often, when he can't get information, he's not averse to reconstructing it in his imagination. Uh, for instance, he needs to know the motivation of the Persian kings. Now, there's no way that he could possibly have found out uh, why the Persian kings did what they did. Uh, but he constructs it out of a series of uh, dreams that the Persian king had, which were interpreted by his court uh, and which he somehow believes he's got hold of, uh, and he then reconstructs conversations uh, and policies as a result of, the, uh, of these dreams. Now, that's the same as in the Old Testament. Uh, that's Pharaoh's dream in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, that's a characteristic way of maybe telling stories in the Near East, which Herodotus has tapped into. But the, 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 the imagination that goes into uh, a conversation between the great king uh, and his senior advisor uh, on whether or not he should attack the Greeks, uh, that's complete fantasy. Hmm. Is there anything more known about the later period of his life than there is with the early period? 
I think not really. I mean, we know about the... Uh, we can sort of reconstruct the uh, intellectual climate of the middle part of his life. Uh, but if he did indeed end up in theory in South Italy, there's very little sign of it. I've often speculated about this. Uh, there are one or two indications in the text that he's trying to give information which appears to be intended for a, uh, a West Greek Italian audience rather than uh, a mainland Greek audience. Uh, distances, he describes them as being such and such a distance and so on, uh, which suggests that he has suggested to me, in a sense, that um, part of the motivation for writing his text down might have been that he'd uh, ended his life in South Italy and he discovered that the Greeks of South Italy knew very little about the Persian Wars and so he was going to tell them. He mm. was going to write an, uh, uh, the first Western history, if you like, mm. the first history for people of the West to teach them what had happened in the East. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. May or may not be true. It's a, a, one of my private uh, fantasies. But uh, uh, it does seem to me that uh, what you're really asking, I think, is what is the trigger that caused him to stop lecturing and start writing? Mm. I don't think he... Uh, it doesn't seem to me that he... Uh, uh, lectured as many modern professors do by solemnly reading out a text that they have in front of them. Uh, no, no, I mean, what he's, uh, the way he speaks, it's, uh, it's, it's what's called in Greek, lexis aromane, the spoken language. It's unstoppable. It goes on and on. Uh, you can never get rid of him. Mm. Uh, once you've started him, you've got to read to the end. Uh, <laughs> And it is the longest book that had ever been written. Uh, so, wow. you know, how his audience shut him up uh, when he was lecturing, I, did, I just do not know. Maybe he said, well, that's enough for the day because you haven't paid me so, enough money <laughs> or, or something. But there is an unstoppability about him. One of the things I've played with a lot is uh, trying to see whether one can reproduce in translation, in, in the... English or any other language, uh, the effect of Herodotus uh, on his audience at the time. Mm. And uh, other people have thought of this. A uh, uh, famous uh, uh, English politician called Enoch Powell um, uh, once translated the whole of Herodotus into Elizabethan English because he said that's what he would have sounded like mm. to an Athenian in the 5th century mm. BC. And uh, I'm not sure I agree with that because I think Elizabeth's English is too uh, uh, too highfalutin. It's uh, uh, too, uh, too literary a language. I think uh, I much prefer more recent translation by uh, a man called David Green, who was uh, uh, wrote a book called On Farming and the Classics. Uh, mm -hmm. He was a farmer 
who was also a professor at Chicago and a famous translator. And I met him once, and he uh, he retired to a cavern in, in uh, the west of Ireland, where he had, I think, a pig farm. And he was your your absolute ultimate pig farmer. You couldn't stop him talking in this Irish brogue. Mm. And so whenever I want to sort of imagine Herodotus, <laughs> I imagine him as uh, David Green, absolutely unstoppable, going on and on and on, uh, telling story after story. This has been a very enjoyable conversation today, Oswin. Thanks for coming on the show and uh, telling more about uh, what scholars know about Herodotus's life and writings. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Murray's uh, couple monographs as examples that I'd mentioned at the uh, start of the show, uh, if anybody would like to look into them and pick them up, the Symposion, uh, Drinking Greek Style, and a commentary on Herodotus books one to four. Uh, I'll drop links to both in the show notes on the episode subpage at IthacaBound.com. Uh, Oswin and everyone listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.